0: Tonight, we're going to be starting, or finishing rather, starting would be a bad move. Uh, We're going to be finishing Titus, um, this series that we've been doing over the last few weeks. Um, Just to remind you, it's a letter written by Paul to one of his lieutenants. Titus had been left behind on Crete when Paul moved on and had been given the challenge of getting the young, immature Cretan churches set up and established, ready to stand on their own in a difficult culture so in chapter 1 we looked at a fortnight ago Titus was given the task of establishing good leadership for the churches finding the right people finding the right role models to be able to to keep them steady and well anchored rooted in an understanding of the gospel, the the trustworthy message he talks about, the good news of what it means to be a disciple of Christ and then in in chapter 2 Paul instructs him on how to teach. So I'll just get this clicker working. There we go. Maybe. Uh, in chapter 2, Paul instructs him on how to teach the whole church community, helping them to understand how to relate to each other, how to teach each other uh, what it looks like to live lives based on that gospel. And, and so tonight, we're going to be looking at the third chapter, chapter 3, where, where Paul turns his attention to, to how these churches then need to interact with the outside world, with the people around them. We'll read that in a moment. But first let me pray for us. Father God, please be with us tonight. Put your spirit at work amongst us. Please humble our hearts. Please help us to be open and receptive. Give us minds ready to understand your word. Give me the words to say, Lord, by your spirit show us what we need to to see and to hear and to understand, challenge us for the week ahead. Amen. I'll read Titus 3, it's on page 1199, if you've got one of the church Bibles. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful, they are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Okay, so three weeks ago I suggested three themes for us as we approach this letter. Um, First of all, Paul seems to really emphasise to these Cretan churches that they're called to be a new people for Jesus. They're set apart in some sense from the, the frankly quite unpleasant culture around them. And then he seems to emphasise that it's the way that they act, it's the things that they're to do which should be setting them apart. He keeps commanding them to be devoted to doing what is good, to love doing what is good. And then thirdly, he he grounds all of that in the gospel. Their motivation for living differently is always an understanding of the way that Jesus has loved them. So, here in chapter 3, I I think we'll see those being worked out. As he deals with the question of how should this gospel people of Jesus interact with the culture around them? It's potentially, for these Cretans a really big issue. So I keep referring us back to chapter 1, verse 12, where we're given a a pretty unflattering picture of Cretan culture. And it's not just Paul being mean. Other writers testify to this. At at the time of this letter, Crete had been part of the Roman Empire proper for about 120 years. And before that, they'd had a, a culture of piracy. And then throughout the Roman occupation, they'd kept that culture going. they had a history of rebellion and insurrection and murder. They were notorious. It was a tough place. So how should a young church conduct themselves in that kind of environment? On the one hand, Paul has been totally clear with them. They are not uh, primarily citizens of Rome. They're primarily citizens of heaven. So, should the young Christians associate themselves with separatist movements, espouse freedom as a cause? On the other hand, they're called to live good lives, to be pure and spotless for their Lord. So, should they dissociate themselves from the pretty vile Cretan culture around them and retreat into Christian ghettos? Paul's instruction to them in in verse 1 and 2 is short. But difficult. And so he takes a bit longer from verses 3 to 8 to to justify it for them. Look at at verses 1 and 2. And I think for us reading it, it can seem a little bit bland. Um, But it's not just vicarish niceness that he's talking about. I'm told that the language used, the, the original Greek, is stronger and punchier than comes across in translation. So, verse 1, with respect to the authorities, how should they behave? Well, these Cretan churches, yeah, they're they're, they're citizens of a new people. They're a better nation. They're a a people called to be Christ's own. That's their core identity in in chapter 2, verse 14. But temporarily, now, in chapter 2, verse 12, in this present age, they're to be self-controlled. And so in in chapter 3, verse 1, they're they're to live as obedient subjects of the authorities around them. And Paul says here, remind the people. That's because this won't be new to them. It's consistent in his teaching throughout the New Testament and actually throughout the Bible. We can pull together a, a theology where God, in his sovereignty, appoints rulers for his purposes. And they're not always believers. And that the general picture we get is that believing people are to submit to those authorities that he's placed over them. We do see limits for that, of course. In the book of Daniel, for example, when rulers foolishly establish themselves in direct opposition to God, believers can disobey them. But the general picture is is not for God's people to establish themselves as a separate group, a separate kingdom. That's just not the model by which he's chosen to build the kingdom of heaven. That's actually the model of worldly power. And and when we see Jesus teaching through the gospel accounts, the the kingdom of heaven comes through being established by completely different principles. It's strong in weakness. It's rich in, in worldly poverty. It subverts the worldly patterns. It turns them on their heads. And so despite being a people called for God's purposes they're to submit to rulers and authorities now as in fact Jesus did obeying the authorities in fact actively upholding righteous rule being ready in verse 1 to do whatever is good and then verse 2 in the way that they interact with society do you see that? they're to slander no one they're to be gentle to everyone in the way that they interact with all of society, they're to carry on, like in chapters 1 and 2, being pictures of Jesus. Verse first two has, has two negatives and two positives. and Again, I'm told that they're hefty words in Greek. So they're to slander no one. They're not to denigrate or, or scorn or put others down. And what the NIV has is be peaceable. It, it's actually don't be quarrelsome. Avoid fights and conflict like the plague. Instead, they're they're to be considerate and gentle. and, And those sound like fluffy words to me, but they're strong language. They're the same sort of language as in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1, where Paul talks about the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The way that despite being far greater and entitled to far more, He in gentleness and considerate kindness does the very best that's possible for his wretched lost sheep. It's a picture of Jesus. To be a Christian on Crete would would not be standing on their rights as citizens of heaven, stepping out from Roman rule. And it wouldn't be isolating themselves from the corrupt world around them in ivory towers of righteousness. Now, be like Jesus descending into the fray, as in verse 14, devoting themselves to doing good, to meeting the needs of the people around them, living out and holding out a gospel message that they've been given. Which is a difficult call. If we jump ahead to verses 9 to 11, I think we get a picture of one way church is that churches fail in that. It seems likely that this is a a particular reference back to the false teachers in chapter 1. Titus, don't let them get you into hot water. Do you remember then? There were people who were rising up, probably from from within the church, and in chapter 1, verse 11, leading whole households astray. People who, from chapter 1, verse 12 and 14, they're, they're teaching was probably based on on Cretan cultural expectations and Old Testament Jewish law. People in in chapter 1, verse 16, who claimed knowledge of something about God. And so here in in chapter 3, verse 9, the the distinctive things about the teaching, the bits where they're going to have run-ins with Titus, are knowledge-based. Genealogies. The lists of who is descended from whom. And, and genealogies are really important in the Old Testament. They build up for us a, a picture of God's promises to his people. And his faithfulness from generation to generation. And, and they show us a picture of Jesus and how he fits into those promises. That's right, why Matthew kicks off his gospel with genealogies. They're valuable it's even worth taking time to, to look over them and to chew them over and understand the richness of the Bible imagery. But nobody was ever saved because they knew that Zadok was the father of Achan. Nor, nor were anyone ever safe with God because they were descendants of Abraham. If you follow the morning service series in, in Numbers, think of Jewish rebels who died in the desert. Well, think of Matthew 3 verse 9 as John the Baptist pops up and skewers the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says this, don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. Then he tells them the axe has been laid at the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. If they're not living good lives, it it doesn't matter who they're descended from. And still less should Titus get stuck into quarrels about the law. The the whole Old Testament was a a story about the law being given, a a beautiful picture of what righteousness looks like from God's perspective and, and then comprehensive, absolute failure of any human ever to follow that standard. None of us can meet that standard. Feed deeply on the letter to Romans where Paul chews that over. There's zero value in Titus getting bogged down in disputes with these guys over genealogies or law keeping because all they do is they, they draw boundaries between believers and not. And they try and box God into a righteous lifestyle. And that's not how the churches on Crete are to stand out. And it's not how God's people will show the wonders of his grace. I think we get that wrong quite a lot. So to, to my shame I remember a friend at university who poured contempt on my, my unsuffled pontificating as I tried to witness to him. He, he said, all I need to do to distract you guys is set you on each other. It was his Catholic friend Adam and me. And in our, our foolish controversies, we'd tear our gospel to bits. It's, it's not that our disagreements don't matter, but we approach them in a thoroughly unedifying way. Maybe like the false teachers in chapter 1. We, we claimed to know God. We, we each thought we'd got him pinned down. But the way that we argued said otherwise. And I, I think. To do the cultural relevance thing, it is pretty easy for Christians today to get mired down in controversy, to let this be the way that we we frame what Christianity is. On the face of it, genealogy and law aren't big issues, but I wonder how much they're there under the surface. The sort of tribal idea we get that our set of people with our set of ideas are either right or wrong. And so we fight our corner. Or we pass judgment on other Christians, or, or, or judgment can be passed on our God by how the Church stands on certain issues. So I'm a teacher. I see, I see this in my classrooms. Maybe 10 years ago, most of my students would simply discount all Christian teaching because of the perceived controversy between the Bible and science. Today, I think that's less prominent. Many of my students are much more suspicious now of those evangelistic atheists but that controversy is being replaced by, by another that the language of Christian intolerance especially on in gender issues. And when we engage with the, the world around us what then are the questions that define our stance? Is that where we centre our effort and our debate? Because Paul says that's not mine. Right. The engagement with the world is defined not on his position on other religions or on science or sexuality or any controversy. It's anchored, like everywhere in Titus, in the Gospel. In his own experience, in his own story, in his testimony. That's what we've got in verses 3 to 8. See the testimony he gives, this, this story he tells? In, in our culture, Christianity or, or religions generally, they're, they're so open to the charge of arrogance, aren't they? How can you claim a truth? What makes your idea of what is good better than mine? But I, th- I think Paul's approach undercuts that. It would be arrogant and hypocritical for him just to tell others how to live because as he says elsewhere, he's the worst of sinners. Who's he to them around? But he can speak honestly and openly of his own experience. And I think that's the model he's giving here for the Cretans to follow. Verse 3 is a razor sharp dissection of our hearts. At one time we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. The cretans around them, they might tell themselves that they're living freely. I'm enjoying my wealth, I'm working towards my ambitions, but Paul's been there. He knows what it's really like. They're enslaved and deceived by sinful hearts, and Paul knows that because that was him. And if they want to deny it, he, he points them to the second half of the verse. This is Paul and with him, Christians, speaking the painful truth about ourselves. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's not the picture we put out to the world, is it? We can put on a good show, we can pretty much fool those around us. We, We can look like good people when we want to, but the truth is our hearts aren't pristine. So I don't know what the question would be for you, but maybe someone else gets that top exam result or the promotion at work or just gets credit and praise and we congratulate them, but haven't you got that snarky voice inside? Or someone else has that marriage or that family or that home or that health and, and we envy them bitterly. What is it for you? Here's my litmus test. This is the way I see what my heart's really like. How do you respond to shame? So, when I think back over my life, it's not hard to find places that I've been a fool. And honestly, I've felt hatred for the people who've correctly called me down, or even have just seen my failures. Is that familiar? Or is it the anger when something doesn't go your way? I, I raged against Microsoft yesterday when I was trying to type this. Oh, I still do. I don't know the question to ask to make it real to you. But I bet you do. We, c- we can hide it if we want. But isn't the truth that we live in malice and envy, hating And being hated. And and here Paul's talking about it openly. And the point is that Christianity has never been about being righteous or better than the peoples around us. So the verse 9 style arguments about holiness, they're a waste of time. They don't present the truth about God. The the point is that the story starts in verse 4. When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. It's the same appearing as in chapter 2. This grace of God offering salvation to all people. This kindness and love of God appears. And verse 5, he saved us. That's the essential point of the story. That's why Paul said it twice. It's not ourselves. It's not because of righteous things we've done. But purely by his mercy. He saved us. How? Second half of verse 5, through the washing of rebirth. That's the washing symbolised in baptism. If you've not been baptised, talk to us. It's an important symbol. It describes the way that we're washed clean, cleansed from the the verse 3 state of our hearts and and birthed into something better. And and note again, it's not by what we do. It's birth. We've got about as much control over it as a baby does over being born, possibly less. We're saved by the washing of rebirth and then renewal by the Holy Spirit. And and that's good because the only way I could hope to change my heart from verse 3 into something fit for heaven would be a miracle. But Jesus has promised the power of God and his people. And in verse 6, that is being poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, who in verse 7 has justified us by his grace. That, that's by the cross and resurrection. Those are an amazing few verses. See that full picture? It's wonderful story the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the whole Trinity of God, at work in salvation. And it is not because Paul's a good boy. It's not because he's righteous. He's not better than us and we need to aspire to be like him. It's not that. It's purely by the kindness and love and mercy and generosity of his God. So that in verse 7, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. What a turnaround. What a story. So what's happening here? The NRV, for some reason misses out a word in verse 3 at the beginning. There's a connecting word there. There's a sort of because or for. So, verse 1 be subject to authority obey the state and be ready to do everything that's good and verse 2 be Christ-like slander no one avoid fights be considerate be gentle to everyone because remember your story remember how you've been saved do you see how that works? verse 8 Paul says Titus look this is trustworthy I want you to stress this stuff it's crucial so that those who trust in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good these things are excellent and profitable for everyone it's the same everyone as verse 2 it's not just the church it's the whole state benefiting And so that's what Titus is to teach If if when he leaves, these young Cretan churches are going to stand firm and communicate the gospel to their neighbours, he needs to ram that gospel home to them. He needs to stress and emphasise it and steer them away from fruitless argument in verse 9. If he can get this gospel story clear in their heads, then in verse 8, they will be careful, they'll be mindful, they'll want to devote themselves to doing what is good. So that they're not going to love and bless their neighbours because they are righteous or good people. They aren't. They're going to do it because they will understand how deeply they've been loved and blessed themselves. Verse 14, Titus, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Because that's what response to the Gospel looks like. So two challenges for us from this chapter as we we finish off this series in Titus. Easy one first. Um, Look at the strength of testimony. Knowing your story, communicating that. It's not cold doctrine which makes sense. It's our stories with the emotional punch of them. Isn't it hugely encouraging when you hear other Christian stories? when you see the way that God is at work in people, when when you see what they're learning and how he's working with them. It's it's a pity, but it doesn't often occur to us to share that with each other, does it? Why don't we do that more? Why don't we, we build that into the way that we talk with Christian friends, with home groups, with the church family, make it a way to season our conversations with the gospel. Find out how each other person in this room came towards faith. What's neat about it, if you're a a bit of an introvert like me, is that it's a conversational gambit you can keep using. So, what's God been teaching you recently? It goes on. Testimonies are really powerful for encouraging each other. But they're also the heart of evangelism. So I I wonder, do our colleagues and friends out there in Oxford, do do they know this story? Is this, in in verses 3 to 7, is this what we're communicating to them? Or are they under the impression that Christianity is about being nice? Or having been raised in Christian families? Do they think it's about genealogy and law? When, when we talk to our friends about church, have we admitted why we need it? Have we been honest, like in verse 3, about the state of our hearts? Did they believe us? Do they know our story, like in verses 4 to 7? Because if not, we've got nothing to offer them. It's just a social club. First challenge are, are we a church that knows? our story and communicates it to each other to our neighbours second challenge I think the risk for a church like us is that we can end up being very inward looking we cater to the Christians because it's nice And it's good and it's valuable to come along on a Sunday and meet a bunch of like-minded folk and and we sing together and we encourage each other and maybe we get some clear teaching and we we go away set up for the week. Maybe we get stuck into a home group and we build each other up there. It's very encouraging. We we help out on a few rotas in church and and we learn from the Bible and, and we encourage each other in faith and it's fantastic. But all the way through Titus, And all the way through the New Testament there's this huge emphasis that faith is worked out in action. Three times just in chapter 3 in verses 1 and 8 and 14 Paul emphasises how the gospel motivates the people of God to do good. I've said in previous weeks the language there of devotion it's like taking up a career. This is how they earn their keep as Christians almost. This is how they meet urgent needs in verse 14. And it's not just their own needs, it's the needs of the rest of Crete. And it's going to happen for them because they know the depth of the grace that they've been shown. They know how deeply they've been loved. Titus has been ramming that home and, and so they're able to love others in the same way it's because they know their story, they'll start to see others in the same light, with God's perspective. It put me in mind that the heartbreaking end of Jonah, do you remember that? And you get the big reveal, the prophet Jonah is outraged, why is God being so gracious to this wretched, evil city of Nineveh? And God says, There are 120,000 people living there who don't know how lost they are. They're they're so spiritually blind, they don't know their right hand from their left. Shouldn't I have concern for them? And honestly, as a church, are we ready to think like that? That's massively out of step with our culture. It's insulting. But if verses 3 through to seven are true of us then the logical next step is to say what about everyone else within a a mile of where you live there are hundreds or or thousands of people as blind as an Ninevites are we a, a church then that will devote ourselves to doing what is good Oxford is a a wealthy city in many ways but there is genuine deep need and deprivation on our doorsteps. There's need for the gospel of course but there's lots of social need too. And and sometimes churches like us get doctrine straight but not much action. But nothing's going to support our gospel so well as actually showing genuine love in the way that we live and serve people around us. And if we don't model verses 1 and 2, if we don't devote ourselves to doing good in our community, how will our gospel reach other people? And how will we grow in knowledge of Jesus if we're not imitating him? James chapter 2 tells us that faith without actions rings hollow. So what would that look like for you and for us? A a few thoughts. As a church, we support the Comfort Trust. It's great. It's in need of volunteers. It it runs sessions for parents and toddlers, but its remit is wider. It would do more if it had the people. We we support Christians Against Poverty, which is amazing. They're crying out for volunteers and for prayers and givers. CAP does brilliant stuff. Helping people out of the slavery of debt and loving them and as a result it sees people coming to faith or, or what about things beyond our church at the moment homeless services in oxford have been suffering since budget cuts but the Steppenstone centre which is just down the road and it was appealing for at least 30 more volunteers in march what about street pastors or, or youth work in or out of church or, or a hundred other ways that we could make the love of Jesus palpable and attractive to people around us? We don't proclaim the gospel out there just by doing church in here. So, our second challenge. Will we be a church that knows its story and so is devoted to doing what is good? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this amazing statement of the Gospel. That you saved us. By your will as Father, by your Spirit at work in us, by the grace of your Son. Please let the knowledge of that take root in us. Please let it capture our passions and imagination. Please help us to see the world in a different light because of it. Equip us to be a church that is devoted to doing what is good. To provide for urgent needs and, and not to live unproductive lives. For the glory of your name. Amen.